Let's do it. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. It's Friday, so you've got questions. We've got answers. Any question of any kind whatsoever, as long as it relates somewhat, somehow, to The Line of Fire broadcast, to guests we've had on, to topics I've covered, to areas where I have some expertise, any question of any kind. And I'll keep trying. The critics, the mockers, the skeptics who bash me by the second online, you can call And let's see how right you are in your positions. 866-348-7884. By the way, I commented on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday yesterday about the elections in England and the concerns I had about the Labor Party. And many have said under Jeremy Corbyn, it's become a hotbed for anti-Semitism. And it's supposed to be a very close election. Well, as the results came out, it was a crushing defeat for Labor and Jeremy Corbyn. I am no expert on British politics, but overall... I was pleased to see those results. All right, to the phones we go. 866-34-TRUTH. We start in David in Oceanside, California. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you doing today? Doing very well, thanks. In fact, uh, heading out to California, but uh, closer to San Francisco for some meetings on Sunday, heading out tomorrow. But otherwise, yeah, oh, great. Man, All good. I should be not too far from Oceanside, uh, I think either January or February, but check my itinerary at AskDrBrown.org. The itinerary is there. Great, definitely will. Um, so the question that I have, if I may just press it really quick. <clears throat> um, so I actually came out of the New Age movement about four and a half years ago, and I was big into psychedelics, uh, similar to you as well. A lot of acid, a lot of mushrooms, and DMT. Um, and Lord miraculously saved me, praise God. Uh, last night, however, I was having a conversation with a couple guys, and this one gentleman brought up an experience, uh, well, not necessarily an experience, but he was talking about some research that he had done and how it pertained to Moses and the burning bush and how they, some, I don't know, scientists or some kind of researchers found uh, this bush that contained high quantity levels of DMT, and I'm not sure about the research into this stuff. I, I remember hearing about it briefly years ago, but I didn't really look into it. And I think the theory goes something like how most psychedelic people would think about it, that Moses was tripping out on some DMT, and that's when he had the experience with Yahweh at the burning bush, and God called him to deliver the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt and all that. And I'm just wondering if there's any resources or any material articles, anything that you can point me towards to look into that a little bit more. And I don't believe it for a second. But Yeah, uh, so so I, you, you do well time. yeah, you do well to dismiss it one hundred percent as yeah. complete nonsense. Before I was saved and my friends would yeah. be telling me stuff that was in the Bible as we were getting high together, as they were just getting introduced to the Lord, but weren't walking with him yet, but we're hearing these stories. And I'd say, man, that's in the Bible. Or, you know, what was Moses smoking? Or those same kind of idiotic comments. Um, I, as you were mentioning this, I just typed in the words, Moses, bur- 
excuse me, burning bush DMT. And here, this is what it must be going back to, okay? Uh, there's an article, The Bible's Moses was on DMT, says Hebrew professor. Uh, it's not only possible, but plausible that Moses' legendary encounter with the ever-burning bush, his conversation with Yahweh and the bestowing of the Torah could have happened to him. Well, he was under the influence of DMT, according to professor of cognitive psychology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Benny Shannon. Um, it seems logical that something was altered in people's consciousness, he says. There are other stories in the Bible that mention the use of plants, but for example, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. I mean, so this is how completely bogus. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the use of plants. That, yeah, people eat. If, if, if you are surviving without animals, then you are surviving on plants. <laughs> it's not yeah. getting high from them. And plus... The plant, you know, tree of life or tree of knowledge of good and evil had nothing to do with some type of a psychotic or psych, psych, psychological experience. So it's yeah. complete nonsense. It's not surprising that it's a professor of cognitive psychology as opposed to a biblical scholar. But your bigger questions are, okay, if he's saying the giving of the Torah also, how is it the whole nation heard this? That's one thing. Yeah. Uh, another thing is, how is it that the God that that allegedly Moses just encountered in a psychedelic experience, actually delivered the people from Egypt subsequently as he promised. Another question is, it is why is it that when you get high and do these things, it leads to fleshly expression, it leads to fleshly indulgence, it, needs, it leads to carnality, but all of these encounters with God lead to holiness and the putting down of the flesh and the turning away from abuse and sober-mindedness. So yeah. the fruit that is born by the, the, the roots, the tree of psychedelics and drug use is corrupt and fleshly and destructive. Yeah. The, the fruit that is born from the tree, from the roots of an encounter with God, produce a changed life and holiness. So it, it breaks down in terms of history. Right. It breaks down in terms of logic. And it breaks down in terms of spiritual reality. So just one of these yeah. other ridiculous, idiotic yeah. things. And best way to dismiss it is to tackle it head on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, re- addressing that also. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. Quick, that... I know, Go ahead. I, I know that uh, also in Second Temple Judaism, they, uh, like for Sinoch, for instance, they attributed the sorcery and the cutting of roots to the watchers that descended on Mount Hermon and all that, and that it was just really bad practices, really wicked stuff. Yeah, was, I mean, look, uh, the, bo- yeah, the bottom line is the Scripture consistently forbids uh, sorcery, witchcraft, dabbling with spirits, and it calls us to be sober and vigilant. Even in the New Testament context, warns against drunkenness. So being sober and being vigilant is the outcome of an encounter with God. A dropping acid, you end up anything but sober and vigilant, as David can attest and I can attest. 866-342. Those who don't know my testimony, we've summarized it as from LSD to PhD. And uh, in my high school days, before I knew the Lord, I was known as Drug Baron Iron Man because of the degree of drugs that I would use, including enough hallucinogenics one night for 30 people. Anything but sobriety and vigilance comes as a result of those abuses. All right, let's go to Fairbanks, Alaska. Dan, welcome to the line of fire. Hey. Hello, Dr. Brown. Hey. Hey, I've got a question, actually, a couple. First is um, in Romans... 15, when Paul talks about the Macedonian sending aid to Jerusalem because of the indebtedness the Gentiles have. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my question is, 
could you recommend an organization that would be worth uh, uh, dependable to give to in that sense in Israel? Yeah, I I, I, do that on the air. yeah, of of course, I'm very happy to do it on the air. Uh, in point of fact, um, when Paul was speaking there in Romans 15, it's an important principle for the whole church to take hold of, namely that there is a spiritual connection to Jewish believers in the land. He was not talking about just supporting the nation in a secular way. There are Christian organizations and Jewish organizations that just help the larger nation of Israel. Paul's focus was on standing with the Jewish believers in Israel. For whatever reason, they were often impoverished and in difficult times. And when Paul talked about receiving an offering, or in Galatians 2, where Peter and Paul agree not to forget the poor, they're, they're primarily speaking of the poor saints in Jerusalem. So helping right. Jewish believers in the land is something that should be important to the entire church. My friend Scott Volk leads the ministry Together for Israel. So check it out, togetherforisrael.org, togetherforisrael.org. It exists 100% to support believers and other needy people in the land. They'll also help Arab believers in the land. Uh, They will help uh, poor Jews in the land, poor Jewish children and things like that. But in particular, they are a direct line to help Messianic believers in the land and a great way to live out the Romans 15 mandate. Uh, God's really raised up Scott and his ministry. Uh, We do our annual tours with Scott. Uh, Their team sets them up, and Scott's with me on the tours almost all the time as well. So togetherforisrael.org, I recommend them wholeheartedly. All right, your other question. Is he he in Jerusalem? Uh, No, no, he's in the States, but he works with believers in, in the land, and he's constantly in and out of Israel. And if you say, if, if, if you designate funds and say in particular that you want to help uh, needy believers in Jerusalem, he'll make sure that's where the money goes. Okay, great. Second question is, um, I, I know it seems like I'm seeing more Christians that are, and Gentile Christians that are involved, you know, in a Messianic movement coming out now and saying that, even Gentile Christians need to observe the Torah, and they, they take it fairly literally. Yep. And I'm wondering how... And they read this, you read a scripture, and it's like, they read it and get them totally different than... Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a serious problem, and it's an error, but it's the result of the pendulum swinging from one direction to the other. And the early church was first all Jewish believers, and they were living as Jews, and then when Gentiles became part of the body... Now the big question was, do Gentiles have to become Jews? The answer was no, they don't. They're equal heirs through the Messiah, and they don't have to become Jews. That's why Paul addresses some of that Romans 14, which would deal with Jews and Gentiles in the same congregation having different practices and how you live with that. Well, the pendulum swings then to the point that you can't be a Jew and follow Jesus. You have to become a Gentile. And the church so swings away from the law or away from the biblical calendar or away from the Jewish roots of the faith— that it becomes unrecognizable to a Jew. I mean, why is Easter separated from Passover on the calendar? Uh, The death and resurrection of Messiah take place within the context of Passover. That's when it should be celebrated. In any case, the pendulum swings back. People recover Jewish roots of the faith, Jewishness of Jesus, things like that. That's wonderful, good, healthy, positive. 
but then they swing too far. They get a healthy appreciation of the Torah. Rather than looking at it as a curse or a negative, they realize it's a gift from God that God gave to Israel and the Jewish people, and there's much to learn from it, but it was also there to teach us our sinfulness and our need for the Messiah and to prepare the way for his coming and to prepare people who would be there for his coming. So all that to say, they swing too far. And instead of saying, hey, you know, we kind of enjoy this or feel there's a lot to learn, and now is you have to do this, and you have to keep the dietary laws, and you have to keep the new moons, and that's, that's a dangerous error. And some will even go so far as to ultimately deny Jesus. They'll ultimately convert to Judaism or go to that extreme. So let us have a healthy appreciation for God's Torah. Let's realize that many Jewish believers feel called to continue to live as Jews, especially as witnesses to our people. But no. Nowhere in the New Testament does it make Torah observance mandatory, especially for Gentiles. Quite the contrary. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back, friends, to The Line of Fire broadcast. Thanks so much for joining us, 866-34-TRUTH. We have our newest, consider this video now out, our animated videos, five minutes long, addressing controversial subjects in depth and in an attractive way, but in just five minutes. The latest is God, a Zionist. This is a major production for us to put these out. A lot of funds taken to do these. They've had great, great impact and have been widely, widely viewed. Our newest one is now up. Watch it at, well, go to our YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown, Ask KDR Brown on YouTube. Watch the latest, consider this video, share it with your friends. Is God, a Zionist. Also, I want to strongly ask you to pray about something, all right? We want to spark a revolution across America. We want to raise up a message that will help shake the nation and awaken the church. And we need as many people as can participate for $1 a day for us to do it. There's a vision as to how we can blanket America on radio and expand so much of our online outreach. And we just need a few thousand people helping with $1 a a day, becoming a torchbearer. That's it. $30 or more per month. Some can give much more than that, and it's no problem. Some, it's a total faith step to do the $1 a day. But I believe God will meet your needs as you do that and help you to be able to give. But not only do you help us, we bless you back with thousands of dollars of free online resources that you can watch, that you can listen to, that are exclusively available to our, <coughs> excuse me, to our Torchbearers. We also send you a new audio message every month and a new insider prayer letter. And you get 15% discount on our online bookstore. If you take the, a trip to Israel to us, which is, could be like a $4,000 trip, you get 10% off. So you, you pretty much get all the money right back to you uh, if you go to Israel with us one year. Would you pray about it? Or maybe today just join us as a torchbearer. Go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Help us spark a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in America with $1 a day. At the same time, 
You help us reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel. At the same time, you help us take the gospel to the nations. But we especially want to focus on shaking America in these urgent years ahead of us. So $1 a day is all it's going to take if we get a few thousand people to join us. So go to AskDrBrown, ASKDRBrown.org. Click on Donate. So many of you, as I travel around America and around the world, come up to me with big smiles, giant smiles. You write to us saying thank you. Thank you for being our voice. Thank you for speaking out and being courageous. Friends, it's my, it's my calling in the Lord, and it's my joy. But we can reach so many more with your support, with your help, with your partnership. So take a moment. Go to askdrbrown.org. If you're presently giving and want to up your giving, awesome. Let's do this together. 866-34-TRUTH. You've got questions. We've got answers. Let's go to Orlando in High Point, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. How you doing, Dr. Brown? Doing well. Thank you, I have you, a sir. question. Yeah, I have a question about uh, equidistant letter sequence in the Torah. Is there such a thing as uh, coming like from from Genesis and Exodus to uh, Leviticus and from Numbers and Deuteronomy to Leviticus. Is there such a thing that every 50 letter is the same? Uh, no, okay, let me, let, let me comment on this. There is something that was first taught in Jewish circles, Orthodox Jews, and they still teach this today, equidistant letter sequencing. Let's say if you count every seventh letter, starting in the fourth letter of Genesis, or every 15th letter in the book of Leviticus, or every 20th letter through the Hebrew Bible, that you'll find these coded messages. And some seem quite remarkable. You know, you have the names of famous rabbis and the dates when they were born. You have what seem to be predictions of of events that took place in the past. And wow, look at this. And this has been used by different groups, outreach groups, Jewish outreach groups, to try to convince secular Jews of the divine inspiration of the Torah or the Hebrew Bible. And there are some, I mean, brilliant scientists, physicists, mathematicians, things like that, and they've become Orthodox Jews in Israel, in America, based on this. You should also know that these same codes allegedly point out to Jesus being a false prophet and a false teacher. So when people begin to use them, need to know that that this is fraught with difficulty. Then I have seen arguments that if you go through the uh, Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12 and count every, every number of letters that you have a clear message of Jesus and the cross. So I've seen Christians and Messianic Jews try to use this to, to prove their point. The problem, sir, is, is this, that we do not have the original spelling of the Torah. Now, a traditional Jew would say we do, but if you're looking at this from the viewpoint of scholarship, spelling changes over a period of centuries. We know that in the Hebrew language, there's no dispute about it. The spelling in the Dead Sea Scrolls is from, say, 100 years before the time of Jesus is different than the spelling of, say, the, the Gezer inscription, which is hundreds of years earlier, almost a thousand years earlier. Uh, when we have fragments of, of writings from the days of Jeremiah, their spelling there is different than four or 500 years later. If you look in the English language, if you're in England, you spell labor like the Labor Party, which just failed in the last election, L-A-B-O-U-R. But in America, we drop the U and it's just O-R, right? When I was growing up, you spelled judgment with an E, J-U-D-G-E, 
M-E-N-T. Now the E has been dropped. Uh, You spelled words like worshiping with two P's. Now in many circles, one of the P's is dropped. So spelling conventions change. So over a period of centuries, the spelling of the Hebrew Bible changed. And then you have minor variants within the different manuscripts, the thousands of Masoretic manuscripts that exist. So all that to say, if you were doing equidistant letter sequencing from the way the Torah was originally written, where you'd have uh, less letters than we have now, then the results would come out differently. And then it seems you can prove all kinds of things. So it's fascinating as to how you get some of these results But I say there is nothing to it in terms of substance, nothing that we can base our faith on, and certainly nothing that should attack our faith. So interesting, but not reliable. And I do not believe that's how God communicated. He communicated through language that we could understand. When he gave the Ten Commandments, he didn't do it in code. When he said, don't commit adultery, that's what he meant. That's how he communicates, not in some secret code that's hidden allegedly in the Bible. 866-34-TRUTH. Thank you for the question, though. It it is worth asking because it does come up a lot. Uh, Let's go over to Lucy in Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Uh, So is it wrong to eat halal food? Uh, Why would you think it would be wrong? So you're talking about Muslim food, the equivalent of kosher, kosher food, in in um in Islam, why would you think it's wrong? Because it's dedicated to Allah, or it's done by by Muslim leaders, or what would be your reason? Um, because well, somebody just told me, um, as a Christian, it's not right to eat Muslim food, and I have Muslim friends all all around me, and um, yeah, so. No, I, I, have, I have zero, zero problem whatsoever uh, eating Muslim food. I mean, I, I'm not a, a big meat eater, but if I was with Muslims and they served me some meat or something like that, I have no problem. If, if I was getting food, I was at a street vendor in, in New York City, and it says halal food, I would have no problem eating it whatsoever. First, understand that whatever you eat does not defile you spiritually, all right? That yeah. when, you, when you physically eat something, it doesn't touch your spirit. It just goes through your body. That's number one. Number two, Paul said even food that was offered to an idol, right? So they offered it to an idol. They sacrificed an animal. Then they, they sell the food. That, that food, if you, if you just eat it and don't even know what it was, it's no big deal because it doesn't defile you. Now, if someone says this was offered to idols such and such, then for their sake, you don't eat it. So if someone said, by eating our food, you are now confessing that you're a Muslim. No, you don't eat it. But that, no, it, it's nothing to do with it. So I would eat it. I wouldn't think twice about it. It wouldn't have any meaning or concern to me whatsoever. So don't, don't worry about it. if you're invited to the home of a Muslim and they serve you their food. Enjoy it and then be a godly witness. All right? All right. Thank you. Sure thing. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, all right. CJ... You're next, then James, Scott, Laura, right after that. Uh, tell you what, I'm going to take C- CJ. Let's take your question, and then I'll answer it on the other side of the break. Go ahead, CJ. And thank you very much for taking my call, sir. Yeah. So um, I had a question about 
uh, oneness in particular, I have a question about what seems to me to be the confusion of persons if the Trinity were true um, in the Bible. For example, in John twenty twenty eight, it says Jesus is God, and yet in John seventeen three, we see the Father is only God. Or in Matthew, I think it's one eighteen, Jesus is born of the Holy Spirit, but of course we call the Father the Father because he's the one who gives birth to Jesus. Um, and the last one I saw was um, Christ dwells in us, but according to, I think it's John uh, 5, I can't remember where they talk about the paraclete, it's the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. So is it the Holy Spirit or is it the Son? Is it the Holy Spirit who births Jesus it. or is it the yeah, Father? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, uh, is the oneness position correct that Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, hence how these other verses work and come together. Yeah, answer that on the other side of the break. Very easily answered. The problem with the oneness people is they have to disregard verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse and the Father sending the Son and the Son sending the Spirit and the Father speaking to the Son and as the Spirit moves on, you know, they, they have to throw out so, so much, including verses right within John 17. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. You've got questions, we've got answers. So over to CJ in Idaho, questions that oneness Pentecostals or oneness Christians would raise, saying that Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they would say, look, Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, in John, the 20th chapter, the 28th verse, yet John 17, 3 says that the Father is the only true God. Well, remember that Jesus has already said in John 14, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Remember he said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. So he's certainly not excluding himself from that because if you look at that verse from a oneness perspective uh, and read it literally and strictly without understanding what he means by only. What's it say in John 17, 3? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus the Messiah, whom you sent. So if you read it like that, that would say Jesus is not God, all right? Rather, a couple verses later, Jesus speaks of the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the foundation of the earth, all right? That completely smashes the oneness doctrine because he speaks of the relationship he had with the Father. John 1, 1 also smashes the oneness doctrine because the word which is God is also with God. It speaks of unity and yet separation. Uh, another thing would be that, yes, John twenty twenty eight, Jesus says, my Lord and my God, but then he also says he is going to his Father and to his God. Uh, you have clear distinctions in Father, Son, and Spirit. You have passages like 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which speak of the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus and the fellowship of the Spirit, right? So you have have God, you have Jesus, you have Spirit. Also, 1 Corinthians 8 says that we have only one God, that's the Father, and only one Lord, Jesus. It's not saying that Jesus is not God or that the Father is not Lord. Jude also refers to to Jesus as the one and only Lord. That doesn't mean that the Father is not Lord, but there are clear and absolute distinctions that are given. And Jesus, as we understand, lives in our heart by the Spirit. 
So on the one hand, oneness is correct in saying there's one God and only one God. And the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But oneness is terribly wrong by failing to see the clear distinctions, which if you read John 14, 15, 16, there are clear distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, even the baptism of Jesus. I know oneness people have answers for these, but the, the obvious reading is here is the Son. The Father speaks that he's well-pleased with him. He's not just well-pleased with himself. He's well-pleased with his Son. And then the Holy Spirit comes on him as a dove. There you have Father, Son, and Spirit all at one time, and yet all distinct. Hey, CJ, thank you for the call. All right, before I go back to the phones, I want to play a clip for you of our latest Consider This video. It's number nine. So even though we put out this year almost 500 videos total, the Consider This videos we've put out in a year plus nine because it is a painstaking process that requires a lot of funding and effort. And, uh, ah, ah, okay, tell you what. So as I'm talking, if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you can go ahead and, and play the clip in the background. So as, uh, as I'm talking, if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, you can see some of the animation. It is incredibly well done and powerful answering the question, is God a Zionist? Please watch it and ask Dr. Brown on YouTube and share it with as many friends as you can. Take that link, put it on your Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram feeds, whatever you have. Let folks know about it. Share it widely. It is powerful. It is scriptural. It demolishes an anti-Israel mentality just using the Word of God and scriptural logic. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to James in Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How are you today? Very well. Thank you. Hey, so um, recently I've been seeing that a lot of different news outlets, them talking about uh, Robert Jeffries because he was invited to the Hanukkah event by President Trump. Mm -hmm. Essentially what they're saying is that uh, Robert Jeffries is anti-Semitic because in the past sermons he's said that the Jews are going to hell unless they believe in Jesus Christ. So I was wondering what's your thoughts on the subject and the controversy? Yes, it's, it's very, very interesting because you have a tremendous union between evangelical Christians and Jews in Israel and in much of America, and a mutual respect and love and honor. And yet, it is an evangelical Christian position that all people, Jews, Gentiles, Muslims, atheists, Hindus, Buddhists, nominal Christians, all people who do not have a true, God, true relationship with God through Jesus are lost and hellbound. So, uh, that is pretty much ignored and thrown in the background for the most part, whereas it should be something that we honestly discuss. And, and uh, some, you know, when I debate my friend Rabbi Shmuley, he's always going to bring that up. You know, Mike, when are you going to say that I have my own relationship with God and don't, no de- don't need Jesus? I tell him, Shmuley, if you could do it without Jesus, that'd be great, but you can't. None of us can. So uh, it is not anti-Semitic to say that Jews need Jesus. I know some Jews consider it anti-Semitic, but that's not anti-Semitic. Any more than it's anti-Muslim or anti-atheist or anti-nominal Christian to say that you need Jesus. We believe every human being has sinned in God's sight. Every human being is guilty in God's sight. No religious belief can save us other than true belief in the Son of God who died to save us from our sins. 
We do not believe in dual covenant, as liberal Christians do, progressive Christians, so-called. We do not believe that Jews have their own covenant with God and don't need Jesus. If that's the case, then throw out the New Testament, because the whole message of the New Testament is that Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah. If he's not the Jewish Messiah, then the whole New Testament is wrong and deceived. And in fact, if, if, he didn't, if he's not the Jewish Messiah, then he didn't rise from the dead, then none of us should believe in him. And if he did rise from the dead and he is the Jewish Messiah, everyone should believe in him. So it is, it is perfectly fine and appropriate for the president to invite Christian leaders to the Hanukkah event in America if they are friends of Israel and friends of the Jewish people. It is just a holy tension that we live with. That here, and, and here's the thing. If you press it with the Jewish people who were there, at, press it with Jared Kushner, all right, the president's son-in-law. Press it with Alan Dershowitz, who was there. If you press it and say, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? They would say, no, he's not. Otherwise, we would believe in him. Now press it further and say, well, the New Testament says that he's the Jewish Messiah. Does that mean the New Testament is wrong? Now, they may try to get around that. Well, look, it may have different meaning for different people. Bottom line, they would have to say it's wrong. Otherwise, they would believe it. In which case, they're saying that the beliefs of Christians are wrong. They may not just say it outwardly. Uh, There'd be no problem for a a traditional rabbi to say, yeah, New Testament is wrong. You shouldn't believe in Jesus. No problem for them to say that at all. But if you press it, they're saying what we believe is wrong and, and that the New Testament is not true. <coughs> Excuse me, and it's not accurate, and and therefore should be rejected. Is that anti-Christian? Well, it's against our position, but it's not a fundamental insult to us. It's just our differences there. All right. <coughs> Excuse me, just fighting a little cough here, but thank you, sir, for the call. Eight six six three four truth. Let us go back to the phones. Scott in Missouri, welcome to the line of fire. Uh, thank you, Doctor uh, Dangerous Brown. Uh, taking my call. Appreciate you are it. welcome. And yeah, I will say I just watched that uh, video recently, so it cracks me up every time I think about it. Hey, quick question: uh, I've been dealing with a friend, a uh, family member, my father, uh, who's in the grace movement, uh, hyper grace movement. And we got into the discussion, and he's always, you know, hey, the the, the Gentiles are never under law. Okay, very good. My question to him, and I thought about it myself too, because it's something as a Christian never really thought about. Jose, I think Hosea tells, he says, you know, God does does nothing without declaring it to the prophets. And we know that God promised the new covenant to Israel, to the lost sheep. We know Jesus told the Samaritan woman, this is why he came, for the lost sheep. Now, I understand that through that, him having to come to restore the house of Israel, I am, now I'll, I can be grafted in. But am I wrong in saying that the new covenant was not promised? And when I say Gentiles, because I believe when Jacob uh, prophesied and gave the blessings over Ephraim and Manasseh, he told Ephraim, you will become, I think the words, Melao Goyim, many many Gentiles. That's what he was prophesied to become, these great nations. So I've always looked at it as like, that promise to the Gentiles was to the lost sheep. Yeah, so, so here's, here, right, Scott, here's, here's where I differ with you. Number one, it does say in Amos 3 
that God won't do anything unless he reveals the secret to his servants and prophets. Those, by the way, who are watching our live feed, I've been drinking water here. Somehow just got teary-eyed trying to fight off these coughs, but but all is well for those who are watching. Uh, if you're listening, I apologize for the cough profusely. But uh, yeah, Amos 3 says that God doesn't do anything ex- unless he reveals himself to his, uh, reveals it to his servants, the prophets. And um, Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 prophesies the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And yes, the prophecy about Jacob, it's not saying it's going to be many Gentiles, just uh, many peoples, because the, the people of Israel grew and expanded into many tribes and millions of people. It's not, it's not a prophecy about Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians are not the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is an erroneous, totally erroneous concept. Read through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul is as explicit and clear as could be that Gentiles, who had no previous connection to the people of Israel, to the family of Israel, to the patriarchs, have now been grafted in. It's this clear point in Ephesians, the second chapter, that those of you who are on the outside, you were without promise, you had no connection to the covenants, you've now been grafted in. You've now become part of the larger commonwealth of Israel. But Gentiles don't become Jews when they get saved. Jews don't become Gentiles. The new covenant was given. The new covenant was given to the house of Israel and Judah. But because the new covenant is the messianic covenant, because the Messiah dies for the sins of all people, it is now extended through Israel to all the nations. That's how it works. Uh, My book, Hyper Grace, if your friend is into Hyper Grace, I think my book, Hyper Grace, would be a very helpful read. Hey, Scott, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. All right. As soon as we come back, I'm going straight back to the phones and we'll get to as many calls as possible. You don't want to miss Monday's Line of Fire broadcast. I do an interview with General Butt Naked. That's how he used to be known. Now Pastor Joshua. But he was one of the most ferocious warlords in Liberia, engaged in human sacrifice, witchcraft, mass murder, radically saved, has done everything he can to make things right with his nation. It's an amazing story. Monday, coming your way. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, welcome back, friends, to the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Ricky in Bellevue, Nebraska, I will not be able to get to your call about the Black Hebrews, but on Tuesday, God willing, I'll be speaking with Vocab Malone, who has devoted a lot of study and research in recent years to the Black Hebrew Israelite cult. So Tuesday's broadcast would be a great time to call in, or if you can't call in, to be sure to listen. God willing. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Lori. Uh, excuse me. No, we don't go there. Let's try Joseph in Daytona Beach, Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hey, you're on the air. Hi. May God bless you. I mean, the speedy recovery. Um, I have a question about Obadiah 120. It says that the exiles from Jerusalem, which are in Sephirod, will possess the Negev. Do you believe this prophecy was completed? If not, what are your thoughts of the awakening of the Pneum on the theme in relation to this passage? 
Yeah, very interesting question. So, no, I, I don't believe that it has reached its fulfillment yet. Um, I, I see the last verse as well, uh, verse 21, of speaking of something that is beyond just what, we're, what we've seen thus far in Jewish history, return from Babylon, uh, and the, the modern return of the Jewish people to the land. So I see something of, of greater significance than that that is not yet taking place. So uh, mentioning the exiles from Jerusalem, <laughs> excuse me, who are in Sfarad, would that be speaking of these hidden Jews, many of whom are Sephardi today? Um, I don't know that that's the direct application of what's being spoken of here. In other words, exiles from Jerusalem uh, in Sfarad. I don't know that that would necessarily refer to, say, a Spanish Jew who in the 12th century under duress and pressure uh, from the Catholic Church converted to, to Catholicism outwardly while secretly continuing to live as a Muslim, uh, excuse me, as a Muslim, as a Christian, uh, and then that was passed on for generations and then lost and is now being recovered that to me would not be a literal fulfillment of that prophecy, but perhaps part of an extended fulfillment of Jews scattered around the world whose identities have been lost and are being recovered. So let's, let's say that this might be a prototype, if not for the actual thing itself. Uh, this might be a, a prototype, you could say, so not the literal fulfillment of uh, Obadiah verse 20, but that being kind of a prototype of similar things, it doesn't mention the Jews being hidden or losing identity or anything like that, as is in the case with the Anasim. But certainly it's kind of a, a parallel, and the mention of Sfarad obviously gets our attention. But thank you for the question. Very interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Gregory in Hampford, California. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Hey. Uh, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Yeah, I just wanted to um, ask you about, uh, I just I have a question pertaining to uh, revival <coughs> and fire. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, revival and, and healing and, and miracles. And um, when I look at, when I look at the book of Acts, I can't help but see that um, it says that there was great city, a uh, great joy in the city, and that there were healings and there were miracles. And um, unfortunately, in my in my experience and the experience of many others, um, I, I can't say that um, I, I can relate, um, irrespective of how much I prayed and fasted, and um, or got together uh, a group of believers. So I'm. My question is this. I know you particularly have experienced revival. What do you think is is the problem, and what is it that we can do um, in addition to prayer, or or that to hope for and and to see and encounter a revival and miracles, etc. Yeah. So uh, they're related, but I'm going to answer separately. When, when we pray for okay. revival, more than anything, we're praying for the awakening of the church. We're praying for a spirit of repentance. We're praying for God's people to return to God in, in first love and devotion and holiness. We are praying for deliverance from worldliness and, and the plagues of sin. We're praying for a heart for the lost and, and, 
and the church awakening, encountering God afresh, and then with that, freshly reaching out to the lost and the lost having fresh encounters with God. That's what we're praying for more than anything. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're crying out for. We also know that with divine encounter, there is a fresh, powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And the outpouring that's taking place around the world, where large numbers of people are coming to faith and regions are being greatly impacted by the gospel, that's commonly accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles. So, for example, our brother Reinhard Bonnke, who just went to be with the Lord at the age of 79, although he emphasized that he was not a healing evangelist, he was a salvation evangelist, and that God spoke to him, Africa shall be saved, not Africa shall be healed. Wherever he went and preached, there were mighty signs and wonders confirming the gospel and demonstrating God's love and compassion. But there were uh, plenty of people that were not healed in the meetings, whereas everyone who cried out uh, to the Lord for salvation was saved. So we understand that the emphasis is always going to be on right relationship with God. The emphasis is always going to be on the state of our hearts. As God spoke to me in, in Kenya in 1989, when people die, I can give them a new body. I can't give them a new heart. So we understand where our emphasis has got to be. The question is, what can we do to see a fresh wave of revival, one? And two, what can we do to see a greater wave of the miraculous. They often do intersect, but they're really, in a sense, two separate questions. So obviously we start with our own lives. We start with repentance in our own life. We start with seeking God earnestly, with prayer, with crying out to God for forgiveness. And then we do what we know how to do. We spend more time with him. We, we share the gospel with the lost. We, we give ourselves to worship and as we hunger and thirst and cry out, God would meet us. If you've never read my book, From Holy Laughter to Holy Fire, I strongly encourage you to read it. I believe it will spark something in you as you do. Uh, and, and then you want to start with your own life. If God touches you, uh, it's a lot easier to recover first love in your life than in a whole church, let alone a whole city or region or nation. So you start there. The second thing is that, that you expose yourself to where God is moving. If you hear that the Holy Spirit's moving powerfully, go worship with those folks or watch some of the videos or take in some of those messages and do the same with Miraculous. Uh, Randy Clark's book, Eyewitness to Miracles, Eyewitness to Miracles, is very helpful in that regard. It, it really uh, will give you a greater perspective on what God is doing. So meditate on the scriptures, see the promises, see what God has spoken in the word and believe that, renew your mind to it, read other testimonies of healing and miracles of, of what God is doing. Remember, we don't earn this. These are all things that come by faith. Ask God to give you a heart of greater compassion to touch uh, and minister to those who are sick and hurting, and you, you will see more happen. You will see things happen. And if someone is really mightily used by God, ask them to lay hands on you and pray for you. If you have the opportunity, many times something is transferred and that way, through the laying on of hands, Paul talks about gifts given through the laying on of hands. And just continue to honor God, worship Him, praise Him, no matter what you see or feel, because He's faithful, and He will touch His people powerfully. And I believe if we cry out, we will see God do amazing things in the days ahead. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, just a reminder, friends, just a reminder, we are burning, absolutely burning, to shake America. We are burning to blanket 
America with the message God has given us and to really help spark a gospel-based moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Oh, things are happening, but we want to see them accelerate, intensify. If we're speak, speaking to 1 million people a week, we want to speak to 10 million. If we're speaking to 500,000, we want to speak to 5 million. If we're speaking to 10 million, we want to speak to 50 million. Our hearts are burning. You can help us. We have a plan. We have a vision. But we need your help to do it. And it just takes one dollar a day. We'll do the hard work. We'll do the day and night work. We'll do the sacrificial work. We'll do the dangerous work. But if you could help us with one dollar a day and become a torchbearer, become one of our ministry partners, go to askdrbrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Pray about it. Some of you can do more than that easily. Maybe you're listening as a pastor. Your church could give 100 or 200 a month without any problem. You know where this money's going to go. You know what we do with it. You know how wisely and carefully we use it for the glory of God. All right? We are good stewards, thrilled to have the privilege of being good stewards by the Lord. And you know with what's given to us, it gets multiplied. Many, many lives are touched in Israel, in the nations. But in particular, we want to blanket America on the radio. We want to expand our online reach. And we need a few thousand people to join us as torchbearers, giving one dollar a day. That's all you have to think about is your role. If everyone does their part, this is going to happen. And 2020 is going to be a year of massive expansion with your help. All right. So go to askdrbrown.org, click on donate, then click on monthly. And when you do, when you do, look at all of the benefits, all the ways we sow back into you Every single day when you're one of our torchbearers, literally every day we're sowing back into you with resources. If you come to Israel with us, you get 10% off the cost of the, of the trip. It's like a $4,000 trip. That's $400 right back in your pocket. If you give a dollar a day, that's $365. You get more coming back to you than you give out. That's what we want to do with our torchbearers. So go there, would you? Askdrbrown.org. Click on Donate.